uh, I turned 40. Uh, I'm all right with it, thanks. Uh, it's all right. In some ways, I kind of feel like the number now reflects how my body feels. Uh, so in some ways, it's nice. Uh, however, in, in the lead up to this event, to this major milestone birthday, uh, I did a little bit of, of introspection. Uh, that's a polite way of saying a bit of a crisis. Uh, the, the, the night before I was going to turn uh, 40, Laura was out and I got to like looking through old photos of life. Uh, uh, yep. Uh, so I had a bit of a moment and I, just, I was looking through these photos and I was reflecting a bit on my life, my 40 years uh, alive. And I kind of had the thought, well, what do I have to show? For 40 years. What have I actually done? What, what have I actually achieved? You know, we all have this innate desire for our lives to matter, to be of, of substance, to be able to look back and identify significant things that we have achieved. We all have this innate desire. And so I started to look back at my life, and the first thing I did, because it's very easy to do, is I started looking at the material things that I had. So like things like our home, uh, our finances, uh, our lack of a boat, uh, those sorts of things, you know, <laughs> really significant things. Uh, although I wouldn't say uh, that what we have is meagre, when I thought about what we own and the possessions we have, it kind of seemed just a little bit empty. And so then I started thinking about, well, okay, if that's possessions aren't kind of necessarily kind of where I can hang my hat and go, look at all the stuff I own. Uh, I started thinking about my family, my wife, my two children. Uh, as I was looking through photos of them growing up, it seemed infinitely more significant than just stuff. Uh, and as I looked through the kids, uh, the photos of the kids as they were growing up, uh, another thought kind of struck me, and perhaps some of those that are a little bit further on in life than me may also feel this is that it seemed, as I was looking at these photos, to be happening all very quickly. Uh, I was looking at baby photos of the kids, and, and they're very much not babies anymore. Uh, my eldest is getting to the point where she's taller than half of you. Um, and that's okay. Uh, but I, I kind of was, was just, I saw in that moment the fleetingness of parenting. There's something natural, right, about the older that children get, the less they need their parents. And so you want to kind of provide instruction, guidance, and care, but the older they get, the more, in some ways, you're just stepping back and allowing them to be who they are. Uh, the more I thought about these things, the more I thought about my life, the more it was clear that everything seemed very either temporary or, or fleeting. Uh, we looked at Ecclesiastes last year here at Glen Osmond towards the end, and, uh, and the main refrain of Ecclesiastes hit me as I was thinking about some of these things. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything's fleeting. Everything is temporary. Except for one thing. Except for God's kingdom. When we choose to invest our time, our effort, our resources into God's, king, that's God's kingdom, that's the only thing that actually will last. It's the only thing that will stand the true test of eternal time. 
when we share our faith and what it means for us with a friend or a family member, that's significant. That's, that's eternal. When we invest in relationships that encourage us and others to continue to live for Jesus, that's of eternal benefit and worth. When we seek to serve others as an act of Christ's love for them and nothing else, we're not doing that to get any personal gain and benefit here and now. We're doing that because of God's kingdom. When we choose to invest in getting to know God better ourselves by actually committing to being in his word and listening to him, by committing to actually spend time in our day in prayer, communicating and talking with our God to grow ourselves spiritually. When you actually think about life, that doesn't seem in the big picture to be something that's particularly valuable, right? But when you actually get the eternal perspective and you actually start seeing that the only thing that truly lasts is God's kingdom, that transforms that simple action of sitting down and reading through God's word into something that could seemingly be insignificant to being one of the most significant things that we can do for ourselves. These are the things that last. At the end of our lives, everything else will be left behind. We can't take it with us. Seeking to build God's kingdom goes beyond this world. It has eternal impact. Now, that's kind of where I was getting to with my little crisis moments late last year and kind of as I was reflecting on my life. Uh, and at the same time, I was actually reading through uh, the book of Thessalonians. Uh, I was doing that for my own personal quiet times. And as I was reading through it, <coughs> this particular chapter, uh, and particularly towards the end, verses 11 and 12, resonated with what I was thinking and how I was feeling. Verse 11 and 12 say, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Seems to be so counter our internal kind of desires to achieve, to, to be significant, to, to have things that we can look back on as, as this is what we have done. It's what almost our culture tells us that life should be about, achieving things, success. And here... 1 Thessalonians 4, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. These verses made me stop and consider, what am I actually aspiring towards? What, what actually ambitions do I have in my life? Is it to work towards something that is ultimately going to be empty and fleeting? Or am I aspiring, it's my ambition to be able to build things that have eternal significance. But before I get too far and start going through things, I thought it was important to notice that these verses actually do come at the end of this book, towards the very end, only goes five chapters, we're in chapter four. I think it's important to be able to actually see how they fit in the structure of this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Uh, they actually think that 1 Thessalonians may have been one of the very first letters written. 
So it's one of the first letters that Paul wrote to encourage one of the churches. Uh, and he's writing to a church where the expectations of Christianity and of faith are not being met by their reality and their experience. They, a lot of them had this understanding that Jesus was going to return and they had assumed that that would therefore happen in their lifetime. But they were looking around and some of their senior members of their faith community uh, were passing away uh, and were no longer with them and they were kind of trying to work out how does this work with our expectation that we thought Jesus was coming back and that we wouldn't have to face death. Uh, on, on top of this, the Jewish persecution against the church is, is ramping up. You can see that all through the book of Acts. The people who oppose Paul first, and not the Romans, it's the Jewish people who feel like they are losing significance and power, and this new Christian faith is challenging their place in their society, and that's where the opposition comes from. Their friends and their family members who used to be around them are the ones who then are turning on them. And Paul's writing to this to kind of give them some encouragement, to be able to help them to be able to see a bit more of a future eternal perspective. And he talks earlier in the book uh, about the certainty of a future punishment for those who reject Christ and who are opposing him and his people that they are experiencing, as well as he talks about the certain future for those who trust and follow in Jesus till the very end. So he kind of got this future element of punishment, but also reward, depending upon the decisions you make in this life. Uh, but the letter also wants to then give some instruction, some encouragement for what does that mean now? All right, so the future is sure, the future is certain, but what, how does that impact how we live now? Uh, and that's where this chapter falls. Chapter 4 is very much kind of the what does it mean for our lives now that we have this certain future hope. And it starts with, uh, as for other, mother, other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you, urge you, in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. I want to stop there because we sometimes hear these words like sanctified and it's only in the context of the Bible that we necessarily hear these words. We often bring a lot of uh, pre-considered ideas of what it means to be uh, sanctified. The Greek word that is used here is hagiosis. Hagiomosis. That's the Greek word. Uh, it basically is the idea of making holy or being made holy. So like the articles that would have been used in the temple to worship God, they would have gone through hagiomosis because they are being made holy to be set apart, to be used for a special thing. Set apart. That's what essentially being holy means. It means that you're being set apart for a special purpose that's normally connected with purity, righteousness, with serving God and honouring him. It is for us, when that word is applied to our lives, it is 
the ongoing process of becoming more holy. It's the ongoing process of becoming more set apart. It is the process of us becoming more and more who we were made to be. God's design for us is that we live in line with his word and his call. As we seek to submit every area of our lives to him, we become more and more who he has created us to be. He has designed us. And as we submit ourselves to him and seek to live for him, we are becoming more and more holy, more and more set apart. We are becoming sanctified. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is about, us becoming more holy. The passage then turns to consider how the readers conduct themselves sexually. Because God has a sexual ethic, a design and a purpose that he invites his people to live in. And actually, living by God's sexual ethic was one of the key ways that people in the biblical times stood out as distinct from the culture around them. One of the key ways that they showed everyone, they showed God that they were set apart, that they demonstrated their holiness was in regards to their sexual ethic. The Roman view on sexuality was extremely open uh, and there wasn't much morality there. An ancient writer expressed the general view of men of power and influence uh, in the Roman Empire Uh, And he expressed it this way by saying, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body, and we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. So in terms of like morally how they conducted themselves sexually, they were fairly open to pretty much everything. Uh, And it's not just the leaders. Uh, The general people were kind of equally influenced by some of these sorts of attitudes. And there were, there were temples that you could go to to worship some of the Greek gods. Uh, and for you to worship in some of these temples, particularly the ones that were designated to some of the female gods, your act of worship would be to go to this temple and to have sex with a temple prostitute. That was how you worshipped in this particular temple. Uh, So you can imagine if the Christians come along and are in this culture with this sort of attitude towards sexuality, start living differently and start having a different ethic and design on the way they conduct themselves sexually, that's going to make them be set apart. That's going to show people that they are different and the continued act of doing that is part of what it means to them to be sanctified. Now, although temple prostitution isn't an issue that we are likely to come across in Australia uh, in 2024, uh, God's sexual ethic for his people is still something that will cause us to stand out and be set apart from the culture around us. I'm aware that as I'm kind of talking about this issue, that this is actually a really big topic. It's an important topic a topic that is often loaded with emotion, uh, and that emotion sometimes comes from a range of mixed experiences. 
And I think it's such an important issue that it's actually worth us exploring, but just not now. <laughs> I think this is actually worth us spending some time, maybe even a couple of Sundays uh, in term two or maybe the second half of this year to be able to explore actually some passages around what actually is God's sexual ethic for his people and how is that going to clash with our culture. Uh, last year, Laura and I went to uh, a five-week seminary at Unley Park uh, on the wisdom literature. And one of the weeks uh, that we were there, Jason Howitt, the pastor at Unley Park, and his wife, Anne, uh, spoke on the book of Song of Solomons, uh, kind of one of the more sexually loaded kind of books uh, in the Bible. Uh, and Anne brought a very different perspective. So Jason's a pastor. Anne is a pelvic floor physio. And so she deals with, in some ways, more of some of the practical outworkings, right, of some of the stuff when things don't go well uh, and when there are issues. Uh, and she kind of made some really interesting observations about uh, our attitude towards sex in Australia. She said Australians generally aren't very good at talking about sex, uh, especially when things aren't or don't go entirely to plan. Uh, that's in Australia. And then when you come to church... <laughs> you add an extra layer of guilt and shame that some churches and some Christian leaders have attached to sex, and it can be hard to know where to go for help and advice within church. Uh, and it just made me think, how much richer would our community be if this was a place, particularly for our young people, where we could actually be open and honest and talk about these things and encourage and support them? We've got some that are about to go through uh, some pretty big changes and some pretty big significant moments of life with uh, hormones and potential romantic relationships. How amazing if they had a church around them that they could feel that they could go to to talk about stuff with, that could actually encourage them and could support them as they navigated and try to work out how to navigate some of these sorts of things. I remember for me, uh, my parents aren't Christian, uh, and growing up, I didn't really have anyone that I could talk about this sort of stuff with. Uh, added to the fact that my parents weren't Christian, they are extraordinarily British, uh, and so they won't talk about anything awkward. Uh, and so I remember I had uh, a youth group leader who actually, when I was about year 10, poor, kind of came and chatted to me and some of my friends about some of this sort of stuff. And that was one of the most significant conversations and moments that I'd had in regards to how I viewed sexuality. Because here was somebody who was actually willing to talk about something that nobody else was with me. I think that's something that we as a church can offer our young people, an environment where we can come alongside, where we can talk about a variety of experiences. No matter where we've come from, no matter what we've experienced in life, we have things that we can offer. We have wisdom on these topics. I said I was going to explore this another time, and I felt like I then kept talking about this. Uh, I, I do want to move on, uh, because the move from 1 Thessalonians is to talk about sanctification being set apart in terms of how do we live out now the reality of the future hope we have, what does that mean for now? Well, it means that we want to continue to be set, at, set apart, to be being made holy in the now. And so one of the key ways it's talked about that is in terms of the sexual ethic, but that's not the only way 
that we be set apart. It's not the only way that we can uh, be sanctified. And so it moves on to talk about, I guess, first how we treat one another. And it talks about treating one another with love as we have within our very kind of design that we should actually act in love towards one another. Uh, And then he goes on to talk about our just general day-to-day life. Uh, And he particularly is addressing an issue within the church in Thessalonica. Uh, Some people knew that Jesus was going to return and they were so excited about it that they had quit their jobs and they were sitting around waiting for Jesus to come. Uh, And so they, other people needed to go out and make money and work so that they could eat because they were were the more holy ones, right? Because they they had abandoned all ambitions that they had in life because they were just waiting for Jesus to return. And this is what kind of these verses that struck me so significantly were actually addressing. Uh, They're actually, he's actually instructing these people to actually, no, no, don't just do nothing. Lead a quiet life. Work as we instructed you to do this. Because as people look at you and they do this, they're going to be more impacted by somebody who is living a quiet life, happily waiting for the Lord to come than somebody who's just quit everything and is just sitting around waiting. That's not going to appeal to other people as they look in, and that matters. It's actually, it's funny, it's almost the opposite extreme to what our culture tells us to do. Our culture is all about success and achieving and what you can accomplish, and these guys have just been like, nothing. I'm not going to do anything. Uh, And it's equally unhelpful. There's a balance, right? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 encourages us to use our lives for good and to do stuff that truly matters. Make your ambition to lead a quiet life. should mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anyone. There is a middle ground. Not being slack and complacent relying on others because the end is coming and nothing really matters. Everything is meaningless. And then on the other side, remembering the stuff we accumulate in this world will actually not last eternally. Our lives need to reflect this balance. If I'm honest, as I look around and I reflect on my life and I look at other people's lives here in Australia... I think we tend to struggle more with making everything about the here and the now, making everything about this life. Uh, Now, I'm actually not saying that there's anything wrong with having aspirations. There's nothing wrong with desiring to accomplish or achieve things. We have some very accomplished and achieved people uh, amongst our community who are part of Glen Osmond. And that's not a bad thing, right? But it's what we actually use as our measure of success. What's your goalpost? Is your goalpost the things that you can accomplish? If I go back to my little crisis, the things I started with, in the big scheme, are actually some of the least important. And so I want us to consider what, what, what's your ambition for 2024? What are you seeking to do, to, do, to achieve? What are you striving towards? We begin the year, often people have these things 
I want to get a job, I want to get a different job, I want to lose weight, I want to be able to have a stable relationship, I want to be able to do this, that, I want to achieve this, I want to buy another house, I want to buy a boat, uh, whatever, all right? I don't actually want a boat, just to clarity. Um, but like, we all have these kind of things. But I want us to actually stop and consider, do you have any spiritual ambitions? What are you hoping spiritually to achieve in 2024? As schools, sports, as routines start up again for the year, as things start getting back into kind of the regular pattern, how are you actually working towards the stuff that actually is going to last? Is your ambition focused on achieving something that is just for the here and now? Although these might be good, these things can so easily and subtly tempt us away from God's call for our lives. Let me, let me want to encourage you to consider some spiritual things that you might be able to pursue or make your ambition to achieve in 2024. Things like spending time investing in your relationship with God. Maybe that's something that you're like, you know what? That's not something. I normally wake up and I'm busy. I've got places to be. And so I rush out the door and I just go. Maybe I actually need to go. What actually matters most, what is of long-term eternal benefit, is that I actually do spend time investing in my relationship with my God. Now, that might not look productive and like I'm achieving things, but I know that what I'm achieving is actually going to last for eternity. Maybe it might be to seek opportunities to share what your faith means with a friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus, who needs to know about his love. Maybe it's your ambition to, to be able to have that friend who's on your mind right now, to be able to have that conversation with them to be able to talk openly and honestly, to start that dialogue. Maybe you look around at your life and you realise that you need people that are going to feed you spiritually, who are going to point you towards living more for God. Maybe there are people that you know who are Christians who come to church, but they are struggling. And maybe you could meet up with them and encourage them and point them towards the life that's waiting for them to continue walking in that as God's people. Maybe it's to make time and space to serve somebody else, not out of any sort of desire for what you're going to get, simply as an act of Christ's love for them. Friends, what are, what are our spiritual ambitions for 2024? How are we going to strive towards and actually build into our lives things that are of eternal benefit, that are going to last longer than the here and the now? I want to end with some of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. He says this in verses 19 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where moths and vermins do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 